Welcome to The Golf Course, a modern forum for business conversations and insurance. I'm your host, Carrie Ann Nadeau, founder and CEO of ODN. Today, I've invited Jason LaMonica of AXA XL to join me for a round on the podcast. We chat about what it's like to launch a new line of business and the importance of providing value-added risk management services and support to customers of insurance products. Let's tee it off. Well, welcome back to the golf course. This is Carrie Ann Nadeau, your host and founder and CEO of ODN. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. His name is Jason LaMonica, and he has a long title, so bear with me, the Senior Vice President and Practice Leader for Subcontractor Default Insurance that's within the construction business line at AXA XL. So welcome to the show today. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here. Yeah, so on the golf course, we're aiming to feature folks who are really drivers of change within the insurance industry. And when I learned about subcontractor default insurance, I said, wow, it's not every day that you see a product that is new or is really pushing the understanding of how we can supply insurance and meet the needs of customers. So I really want to start there and help the audience understand what is subcontractor default insurance to start. Sure. So uh, subcontractor default insurance, or SDI, which is way easier to say, yes. um, is a, uh, a, a product line that helps general contractors with the risks that they can experience as a result of a failure of a subcontractor to perform mm-hmm. per the conditions of their subcontract. So in many ways, it's, it addresses the same risk that traditional payment and performance surety bonds do, uh, do but it does it in a, in a completely different way. It's a, it's a first-party coverage rather than a third-party guarantee that surety is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it restores a lot of control to the contractor in a law situation where they get to cure that default in their own way. Yeah, so maybe you could walk us through an example, a very tangible example of where things go wrong and where this product would be really helpful to have. Yeah, sure. So if you're a large general contractor um, operating anywhere in the United States or Canada, you know, you're relying on the performance of third parties to deliver the work to the owner. Most, most GCs, uh, don't employ their own labor force. They're employing the labor forces of the subcontractors they work with. So you're beholden to their performance. So let's assume that you're doing a hundred million dollar, uh, office building job here in Manhattan. And uh, you uh, uh, you employ a steel contractor to do the superstructure, and um, you know through halfway through the job they become bankrupt. They they cannot no longer meet their obligations, and they close the company. Um, you're going to still be responsible to the owner to deliver that work on time and on budget. So uh, let's say that that contract was twenty million dollars. Um, now you have to get a replacement sub in and ultimately it costs you more than 20. Maybe it costs you 25 or 30. The difference between that original 20 and the $30 million that it costs you to build that, that superstructure, uh, through an, an, another sub is your loss. And that's where SDI comes in. We'll, we'll pay the, the difference between the original contract balance and the new contract balance after application of deductible and co-pays. It is a loss sensitive product. Wow. So did this product really emerge from the customer saying this would be a more ideal sort of uh, way I'd like to be brought back to uh, my my previous status? I mean, where does a, a new idea like this come from? Great question. So um, SDI was born back in 1996, um, basically from the idea that there were a lot of 
um, subcontractors whose sureties were not especially great. There, there are a lot of great sureties out there that do a, a wonderful job. Um, but there were some, uh, many subcontractors were providing bonds to their GCs through um, lesser sureties, let's put it that way, that behaved differently in a claim scenario. And, and, and uh, they were concerned about the slowness of response. Um, even the best surety in the world, because it's a thir third party coverage, needs to protect the fiduciary responsibility that they have to their to their sub to ensure that the default was proper, that the termination was proper, that there was no mitigating circumstances that would make it not the sub's fault that they were not able to perform. And that therefore they have to do an investigation and that takes time. Meanwhile, the job is sitting there idle. Right. Uh, you can't you can't put pour concrete, you can't put up walls internally until that steel superstructure is up. So if you're if if it's a a, a sub on the critical path that defaults, um, it's going to slow your job down tremendously. SDI was born out of the idea of let me as the GC decide how to cure that default quickly. So I incur minimal time delays. Um, perhaps I have liquidated damage penalties in my contract with my owner that I'm much more concerned about rather than incurring a little bit more cost up front for that additional to, to get someone in right away to keep working on that superstructure in our example. Um, that might be a much more cost-effective way for me to manage and mitigate the total cost of this event right. rather than go out and get five low, low bids and, and go through a whole investigation process. So it's really sort of um, helping the your end customer who's going to be a, a general contractor or someone managing a very large um, uh, construction property or property under construction, um, it's really helping them achieve their goals quicker, right? To get that property up, rented, sold, right into the market, um, because the delay can cost that person a lot more money than it's really worth. Do you see other negative consequences other than lost costs? I mean, they might not be able to complete the project at all, right? You could foresee a situation where without this sort of insurance, someone might be able to, or might be going bankrupt. Sure. I mean, the, the, the risks are broader than just the economic loss, right? So, so there's reputational risk for the contractor. Um, there's, there's the risk of loss of market for the owner. There, there's, there's, so many, there's too many to actually name, right? Um, and and the, the beauty of SDI is that it, it, it really provides flexibility to the general contractor to do what they need to do to cure that default in the way that they see fit rather than in the way that um, uh, a carrier or a surety would see fit. You know, we're along for the ride. Um, the, our general contractor has large retentions involved, so that's how we align our interests to make sure that they're not spending money flippantly because they're spending their money first. Right. But we're restoring control in that in that uh, uh, scenario back to uh, the general contractor who is our insured. And when you talk to the general contractor, um, I guess one thing I'd like to sort of extract from the example of SDI is how do other lines of business really innovate? And you hear a lot about customer-centric design, customer-centric product development. I'm curious for your perspective, what do you think the sort of um, most important features of your product are in terms of meeting the needs of a customer? How do you listen to that customer? How do you find out if the product's working and how do you iterate? How do you design something to really meet their needs? 
Great question. So I came over to AXA XL in 2011 to start up the product here. I had been at another company where, where we had done SDI before. And, and the first thing that I did when I came over was I met with a lot of my former customers and said, what do you really like about your SDI program and what do you not? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the feedback was enormously um, uh, homogeneous. You know, the, the, the feedback was very consistent. Um, mainly SDI wasn't broken and didn't need fixing that, but there were things around the periphery that they, that they wish they had. Right. And a lot of that's focused around the services that we ended up providing and some, some coverage enhancements. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, SDI limits work differently than surety limits. And without getting too deep into that, the, the, um, the ability for that limit to be more used, utilized more cost effectively by making it more responsive to the actual contract size that you're insuring. We did some things around that as a direct result of some feedback from, from some, some, uh, some customers that gave us that feedback. The claims process was really something that a lot of people gave us some negative feedback about from my previous life. They, they felt that the claims process was um, slow. Uh, Mm -hmm. to use an easy word, uh, cumbersome to use a bigger word. Mm -hmm. Um, The way it works is the general contractor submits costs to the carrier to to be uh, reimbursed after they incur and pay them. Um, and that process can be very forensic and tedious, right? So mm-hmm. the the, the uh, uh, risk engineers and claims adjusters need to go through all those cl- costs in detail to ensure number one that they were caused by the fault, the the default in question, and number two um, that they are um, uh, uh, you know directly related to the scopes in question. Mm-hmm. So the the um, that process was thirty days in length in theory, but really what would happen was You'd submit your costs. The carrier would have 30 days to respond. On day 29, they'd respond and say, we don't have enough information. Mm. So there was this, and then that would go back to the insured, and it would take them a while to put the information back. And that I call it the never-ending RFI loop, request for information loop. It just went on and on and on. So we really tried to skinny that process down a lot to make it much more responsive. We get on the phone with our customers up front. As soon as we get notification of a claim, we talk through what's going on. We tell them what we need. As soon as we get information, we try to go through it quickly, get back to them with, I, I see what you've sent me is looks mostly complete. Here are the things that I need. I'm yep. still going through the, re- the rest so that we don't have that 30 minute, 30 day delay every single time. Mm-hmm. So things like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that also has an aligned interest for AXA XL as well, right? Because a lot of folks in product development focus on uh, reducing the loss cost, reducing the actual kind of risk exposure of the organization. But here you're talking about this, this efficiency might actually also improve the operational costs and the operational expenses related to administering a very complex and expensive policy while also retaining customers longer if we're, you know, giving them a product that they need. Do you think that there's a trade-off there when it comes to trust? Because it sounds like we're putting a lot of um, trust in our customer to not defraud or to to be sort of um, open and transparent during a crisis, during a loss, uh, to provide the information that we need honestly, truthfully, and forthcoming. Obviously, there's backstops there, but do you find that the that you know, trust on the front end actually does see the operational efficiencies on the back end. You see reductions in sort of bad experiences for XXL as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can think of uh, a couple of situations um, uh, the, that I can't comment on directly that we've had where um, uh, our customer was was concerned that if they if they shared too much with us, we were going to do some sort of a gotcha, right? Mm. And and utilize that to um, uh, pay less claim or deny the claim or something of that ilk. But really, open and honest communication from day one serves to reduce loss for both us and for customer, right? So we see a lot more losses than our customers do because we ensure a wide swath of the market. Right. And that experience um, is valuable. And, and you know, so we've seen people go through, we've seen most of it, if not all of it, right? So when, when a customer comes to us and says, here's what's going on, we can usually say, go do this, this, and this, right? You know, my, my, my sub is in bankruptcy and I haven't taken delivery of some materials. Go get, the, or, or is about to file bankruptcy. Go get those materials right now. Even if you have to rent space from them in their warehouse, mark those materials as yours so that they are 100% yours and it's very clear legally. Because if you don't, in the bankruptcy proceedings, that, that asset's going to be liquidated uh, and you're going to be standing in line with the other creditors and you're not going to get 100% on the dollar. You're going to get like 20 or 30 cents on the dollar if you're lucky. Wow. So, so you know, things like that that you may not have an experience with, we have experience with and we can provide advice and support. It's never compulsory. We can't force you to do anything, but, um, but we can definitely provide advice uh, that, that, that is based in real experiences that would serve to reduce your loss and our loss. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the innovations I think you touched on just briefly is the sort of first versus third party payer model. I want to come back to that just to make sure that term is clear. First and foremost, what is first versus third? And then I'd love to discuss other applications for that as well. It seems like a different model for insurance. So let's start with, could you help the audience yep. understand what's first versus third party? Sure. Um, so it, it, it refers to the number of parties in a relationship, right? So if you think about a payment and performance surety bonds, it's a three-way relationship. There's the surety, there's the subcontractor who is the principal, and the obligee who is the general contractor. The obligee is the party that gets paid, the customer is the principal, the subcontractor, and the carrier is the surety. So there, it's a triangular relationship, right? Each one of them has uh, a relationship with the other two. In a first party relationship, there's only two parties. I guess that's counterintuitive, first party, two, two parties. Yeah. But there's one relationship back and forth between those two parties. In this case, AXA XL and the general contractor. We don't have any relationship or any fiduciary responsibility to the sub. We're not insuring the sub for anything. We were never insuring the sub for anything. We're only insuring the general contractor for their possible economic loss from a default of one of their subs. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the nature of that is that there is less frictional costs, right? So there's, there's less, no one has to get sued. No mm -hmm. one has to uh, make claim against some other party that's not the party that bought the insurance. So it's a much more direct, a much more symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. than you have in, in, in other lines of insurance that are three-party three uh, relationships. Many lines of insurance are third-party, uh, mm -hmm. general liability, auto. Um, some are both. Professional liability can be part first-party and part third-party. But anytime you can take a third-party mechanism and turn it into a first-party mechanism, mm -hmm. that is an innovation that is going to reduce costs 
because there's less parties involved, less back and forth, and frankly, less lawyers get involved, which means lower loss costs for all. Wow. Apologies to the lawyers out there. <laughs> Not too many tune in uh, to the insurance <laughs> podcast, but if there are any out there, yeah, sorry, we're, we're taking away some of your business. <laughs> uh, well, cool. And I'm, I'm curious to know your vision for the future of this. You said, you know, there's a number of um, different lines within insurance today that are third party. If you translate those to first party, you can find opportunities to remove a player, lower operational costs, What's your vision for either the future of construction and how you can continue to innovate on this line and where it goes next? Or how do you think others maybe watching the podcast could learn from this experience or study up about how this transformation happened um, for SDI? So um, transforming a product from third to first party is not for the faint of heart. Okay. Um, you know, you, you, you have to be willing to cannibalize an existing line of business, at least in part. Um, so at my former employer, uh, when, when SDI uh, was first invented, um, there was a large surety team and they were not too happy about the fact that we were doing this because they were seen as, you know, you're, you're attacking our business. You're basically writing coverage for risk that we were insuring through, through surety bonds. And that's at least in part right. Uh, the, the fact remains that 85% of the bonds written in the United States um, are written on public projects rather than private projects. Oh. And most public work, um, SDI uh, uh, tends not to work so well for public work. It can work for public work, but most GCs don't use it for that. They use it on the private side. So um, so that's only in part true that we're cannibalizing that business. But um, it, you know, it's not always feasible to turn a third-party coverage into a first-party coverage. The coverage mechanism has to work totally differently. Surety is a first dollar coverage as opposed to SDI is a, is a um, loss sensitive product. That's a big part of it. So um, there are lots of customers do loss funding for their um, deductible and copay uh, um, mechanism. So, so there's, there's a lot of nuance to it. It's not simply just flip a switch and you can turn a third party coverage into first party coverage or, or they'd all be first party coverages by now. Okay. Because believe me, all, all carriers would want to do it if they could, um, because it's a more efficient mechanism, but it doesn't always work. Really for us, the, the, the innovation in the space has really been around service um, mm -hmm. and has been around um, some, some of the, the value added risk engineering services that we give to our insureds around benchmarking them against their peers for things like pre-qualification uh, systems and processes or quality control and quality assurance processes, mm -hmm. just seeing how in depth, how you run those processes as a contractor versus how some of your peers are doing it, of course, on a blinded basis. So you don't, you don't know who you're being compared to, but of like kind quality, geography, size, that kind of thing mm -hmm. is really eye opening. Um, sometimes you get pushback from a customer around a particular um, area of prequal. I, I can't get uh, work in progress reports from my subs. They won't give them to me. Well, three of your custom, your competitors are getting them all the time. So that kind of changes the dynamic and contractors are very competitive people. Um, mm -hmm. They never want to not be the best at everything. Uh, so, so uh, that benchmarking service that we do is, has been pretty impactful and has really led to better risks on both sides for carrier and for uh, customer. 
I really like that vision too, to sort of evolve a product that's already quite customer centric, right? GC centric to say what more value added services can we provide on top here? And the one you point out is really quite striking because as you mentioned, it will actually reduce the, the risk, right? So we're getting ahead of problems now instead of just being responsive. So maybe you could share an example of where, you just mentioned one, but an example where um, information you could provide to the general contractor will help them make better choices, right? Are you helping them maybe identify quality contractors? I know that that's a challenge where a contractor will go from being ABC contracting to ABCD contracting or whatever. (laughs) How do we sort of help and advise the whole industry really to evolve to be more risk mitigation versus risk management? Yeah. So the scenario that you're describing is where, you know, many subcontractors that find themselves in financial trouble declare bankruptcy and then, and then open up under a new slightly different name, but it's really the same people. And it's the the, the same contractor that they were before. Um, Usually a bad actor in that case. Um, uh, That's why. And so they're being pretty sneaky to circumvent uh, uh, obligations that they can't meet. So Mm -hmm. they just shut down that company, move on to another one. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot we can do around that. Um, obviously, you know, when we're aware of it, we let our customers know this is this is the same people that were behind that other company. Um, but really, you know, what we help our customers do is is un- understand and make educated decisions about um, the projects they pursue, the subcontractors they award to, the means by which they're going to manage those subs, and the means by which they're going to manage quality on their job. Those are really the, the key tenets of what we do. Um, and we don't presume to know it all, but we see, we see a wide swath of the industry so we can provide a lot of feedback around how others are doing that. You know, we saw a best practice over here around pre-qualification. Some, some contractors, a great example, some contractors are centrally managed for pre-qualification. There's one office that does pre-qualification and perhaps even the whole procurement process for the whole company. Wow. Other contractors are completely decentralized and procurement and, and pre-qualification is done in the field by project managers, project execs, as, uh, uh, et cetera, and or their teams. So both can work well, but if you're going to run a decentralized model, you need different checks and balances in the process than if you're going to run a centralized model. It's, right. it's really simply you know, making sure that there's a consistent way that you're evaluating the risk and making a smart decision about award. Um, so like I said, either one can work. It's just, you can't approach them both the same. They're different animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fascinating. I know I've learned a lot about SDI, um, as well as kind of the construction lines. Excuse me. Let me just close that. I know I've learned a lot about SDI in our conversation today, so I'm really thankful that you could share sort of your experience with a very specific line of business, but I think there are so many broad applications for transitioning insurance products, again, to be much more customer-focused, much more risk mitigation, risk prevention, anticipatory of problems happening, and really have the opportunity to transform profitability of lines, right? You talked about lowering operational costs. You talked about 
reducing actual risk um, and really helping the customer better understand how they can be a responsible customer as well. So I think there's a lot to take away from today's conversation. And I hope our, our listeners can uh, go back to their desk no matter what line they're in and really think about how could some of these um, key sort of fundamentals of a new line new being born in the 90s, right? And seeing some of the experience and the benefits of this approach really accrue to other lines as well. So thank you again for joining me on the show today. Oh, no, no problem. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Absolutely. Again, this is Jason LaMonica. He is the Senior Vice President and Practice Leader for Subcontract Default subcontractor default insurance that's say sdi <laughs> i think you can google it with sdi it'll come up uh and he's at axa xl in their construction business group so again thank you for being on the golf course and we'll see you next time Bye-bye great now. thanks carrie bye, bye.